morning. The second reading comes from Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, from the NIV version, National, New International Version. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. The second exhortation is to fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is upon you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they be slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favouritism with him. That ends the reading. Thank you, uh, Clive. Well, let's let's come uh, to God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that together as uh, your people here, that we'll understand this word by your spirit. Help us to be encouraged in your word, and that together uh, we will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you will bless the preaching and proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, friends, this morning we continue our, our series on the book of Ephesians. We are gradually working our way through, and hopefully we will finish this book this year. We will get there uh, in, in time. Well, before that, by the way. Well, this morning, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. And I've titled the message, For Whom Are You Working? For Whom Are You Working? Well, friends, what comes up in our minds when we think about work? Just for a moment, just for a moment, just think about this. What comes up in your mind when you think about work? You're excited about work? Think, wow, I've got to get back home and I'm going to do all those dishes. I'm going to clean the house. Man, I can't wait to do it. I can't wait to vacuum the place. I can't wait to do the gardening. I can't wait to get to work on Monday morning. Maybe you are. I don't know. Perhaps things like early mornings, when you think about work, overtime, long days, ah, difficult bosses, Man, you can't go to work on Monday. I can't face my boss. He or she is a real difficult person. Deadlines to meet, perhaps, are some of the things that may come up in our minds. If you're a student at uni, you've got to do those assignments. Everything, man, deadline comes our way. For us guys in ministry, Thursday evening is cut-off point when the sermon has to be finalized in some way and everything has to be sent to the secretary and it all happens. Deadlines. 
Someone actually asked me yesterday, tell me, what do you do during the day? What's the, what's the profile of a minister? I said, I just sip my lattes, I just sit around, I watch TV, I play golf, I have a good life. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, well, we do work, not just on Sundays, just in case. So work, work, can be, work can be tough, it can be demanding, it can be challenging. For those in full-time, uh, minist- uh, in full-time work, a long weekend is always very welcome. Uh, when you can sleep in and enjoy some great leisure time. And why not take, for example, this coming week, for the first time we'll have a short working week this week, because Friday is going to be a holiday for the football weekend. Good for those who are supporting those teams, not for me anyway, but I'll still enjoy the long weekend. It's, it's always a good thing. A public holiday. You see, so work can be both rewarding as well as challenging. And the reality is that work is very much part of our day Today, living. And so this morning we will continue our study on Ephesians, as I said, as, uh, as Paul addresses the topic of slaves. He addresses slaves and masters in this text. At first read of this passage, you think, what on earth can I make of a passage like this? Slaves, today, masters, how do we go about this? So I put it this way, whom are you working for? And I hope it become clear as we work our way through Uh, The passage today, Uh, there are two uh, points that I want to look at, which is, I think uh, we'll get that up on the screen, yeah? Okay, there we are. A word to slaves and a word to masters. A word to slaves and a word to masters. Well, a word to slaves. That's what we see here in our passage here this morning. Uh, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, some have said that our text has been used to justify the slave trade. Therefore, they have taken this passage and said, yes, slavery is possible. How should we see this text in the light of slavery in history? Well, friends, it was estimated that there were about 6 million slaves in the Roman Empire at the time. Nearly one-third of the population in large cities such as Rome, Corinth and Ephesus were filled with slaves. Nearly 6 million. And at the time of writing this letter, slavery was a commonplace social practice at the time. These slaves were very much part of the workforce. There was also at the time forms of voluntary slavery, when a person would bind himself to the service of another, when, for example, he had to pay off a debt. So instead of paying off the money, you would say, well, I owe you $2,000, let me give you two weeks of my labor free. It's not bad, isn't it? So there was a way of doing that as well. However, as time went on, there was the dehumanization of slaves which was reflected in the early Roman legislation. For example, the Roman uh, statesman Cato, this guy, said this about slavery. Old slaves should be thrown on a dump. And when a slave is ill, do not feed him anything. It is not worth your money. Take six slaves and throw them away because they are nothing 
but ineffective tools. How's that? Throw them, old slaves, in the dump. If he is ill, do not feed him anything. He is not worth your money. So this is just an example of the attitudes that people had towards slaves. For example, Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, strongly believed in slavery and he justified the institution of slavery. And in his view, slaves were the possession of the family and were considered the property of the master or the family. He was also of the view that slavery was natural and was beneficial to both masters as well as slaves. And this is what he said about slaves. To him, a slave was a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Just to be used as a tool and then discarded. And so this, you see the Romans gave legitimacy to the masters of slaves to treat their slaves as they pleased. And this was mirrored in the Roman legislation. Legally, they, they, were, they were on chattels without rights, whom their master could treat virtually as he pleased. Think about that. And as a result of this, there were terrible atrocities of physical torture that was committed against slaves by their masters. I read about this this past week. And I was almost tempted to, to write it in this talk, but I did not because I couldn't bring myself to write it down because the atrocities that was committed against slaves was shocking. And they gave legitimacy to it because in their eyes, a slave was a tool, an inanimate tool, as it were, to be used, to be discarded, to be tortured, to be thrown, to be killed. And not fed. It was a dreadful trade. So you think about, friends, the, the, the English slave trade, traders who were shipping about 35 to 40,000 African slaves across the Atlantic every year. Rose and myself are reading a book at the moment on John Newton. Actually, it's given to us by our daughter and son-in-law. We are reading that book uh, through at the moment. And it's shocking to read some of the stories there. And God in his amazing grace converted this guy, John Newton, who was a ship trader, a slave trader, who was a captain of a ship. It was a dreadful trade. The conditions of transport of these slaves were horrible and appalling. And there were many who thought that slavery could not be abolished. But then, there was one guy, one guy, William Wilberforce, Heard about him, I'm sure you have seen the movie. Wilberforce, who was born in England, he was educated at Cambridge. His desire was to be a politician and he was elected to Parliament in 1870. And Wilberforce went through a period of deep soul search and depression. And he began to question the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? Have you asked yourself that question? Yes or no? I have. Now, what is the meaning of our existence? We are here today, or we may never have a tomorrow, correct? Are you guaranteed tomorrow? I opened up my emails this past week, 
So you always do, you do. And I had a, an email from, I've never met this person, an astrologer. I don't know how that email came into my email box. Let me tell you about your future. I thought, wow, that's interesting. I never opened it, obviously. Because I don't need to know my future from an astrologer. No one knows the future, only God knows that. <laughs> right? But the fact of the matter is, William Wilberforce started to ask the questions about the meaning of life. You might think you got everything made up, friends. But no one can actually give you a substantial explanation of the meaning of life until you see life from God's perspective. Why am I here? What am I doing? What's my existence for? What's God's purpose for my life? How long will I serve this God? How long will I have to live on this earth? I don't know. And so Wilberforce began to, to search the questions. And then, by God's grace, on, on, uh, East, on, on Easter Sunday, on Easter morning in 17, uh, 1786, I don't know, we can put the slide away for now. So. On, uh, on um, 1786, at the age of 26, Wilberforce committed his life to Jesus. And his life was changed. And he began and he committed himself to two aspects. So the focus was on two causes when he was converted. He said, the first thing I want to do is to evangelize the lost. And the second thing I am committed to do under God's grace is to abolish the slave trade. And so Wilberforce spent much time learning of the horrors of the slave trade. From John Newton, who by the way, as I said, was a ship captain who transported slaves. And so John Newton left the slave trade in 1754 when he became a Christian and he went into ministry and we know that he wrote the famous hymn that we just sang, Amazing Grace. And Newton, 35 years older than Wilberforce, became a mentor for Wilberforce. And John Newton urged Wilberforce to make a difference for God as well as for human dignity by speaking against slavery. And after much opposition, friends, in Parliament and personal suffering for his cause to get rid of slavery, he finally achieved victory in 1807. 27 years after he began his anti-slavery campaign, when the British Parliament finally voted to get rid of the horrible trade throughout the British Empire. And God used a man who came to understand this. Now in our passage this morning, I've just given you a very quick overview about slavery. You see, in our passage, Paul does not comment on the various forms of slavery at the time. If you look at the passage, and I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open to this, uh, this passage, he just speaks in general to any person who happened to be a slave. And so Paul addressed slaves who had become Christians and who were part of the church family. And these Christian slaves, they needed to work out in their own hearts and minds how are they to respond to their masters. Should they disobey them? Should they shirk their work? How are they going to respond to their masters? And so in this passage, Paul's, Paul deals with the master-slave relationship. He says to the slaves, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. As you can see, verses 5 uh, onwards there. Obey your earthly masters. The word earthly simply means the sphere of authority of these masters were on earth as opposed to Jesus, who is Lord of both earth and heaven. 
How are they to obey their masters? Have a look at the passage, please, with me. With fear and trembling. With a sincere heart. Not as eye service or men pleasers. Three things, okay? Fear and trembling. This is not some bowing down before a master or an employer. So each time you see your boss, you say, that only happens at the MCG. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, right. Fear and trembling. It, that, that, it, it, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you're going to, each time you see a boss, you bow down. I think in some cultures that happens. Right? Uh, in, in Sri Lankan culture, when uh, I was growing up, we had, sl- we had um, uh, we, I won't say slaves, but we had house workers in the place. Servants. Right? And uh, when they see their, uh, the, uh, the master of the home, they would bow down like that at the table. It, it all happens. And it was part of that whole culture. Uh, well, I said to Rose, if you go back to Sri Lanka, there, you won't have to cook at all for the rest of your life. There will be servants working there. How's that? You don't have to drive, nothing. Wouldn't that be good? No. The point is, is in some cultures that happens. Fear and trembling, it's a, it's a reverence for authority of the boss. It's with a sincere heart. It is a heart without hypocrisy or single-mindedness. Because it is from the heart that attitudes, actions and motives are determined. Dr. Asis Prowl, commenting on this uh, aspect of things, says the following. Some of the principles that Paul applies to slaves can well be carried over and applied to anyone who is an employee. But Paul says is this. Work with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. And therefore, one's work is to be characterized by integrity and singleness of purpose with a sincere heart. And then look at this. Not as eye service or men pleasers. They are to go about their work not as people pleasers. Well, friends, let me just touch for a moment about the subject of work. Alright? I won't be going into an extensive theology on the subject of work, but let me just highlight some aspects of it. Work is good. Yeah? Right? You're with me? Good. Work is both a duty and a gift, even though it's tough. Why do I say this? Because when God created this world, he worked, correct? And he rested on the seventh day. Not that God needed rest. He doesn't need rest. But he gave us a pattern of working, resting, resting, working now. Alright? Because this, because there is the danger of becoming a workaholic. That you're constantly working and working and working, that in the end you get burnt out and you're not of any use to your family, your friends, to your gospel ministry, to the church, because of a workaholic approach. See, work is good. We read in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that God created the heavens and the earth. And where once there was nothing, now there is something. Indeed, by God's creative power, there is everything. He worked to create something out of nothing. By exercising his creative power. And throughout Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see that God was busy working in the shaping of creation. So in the beginning, God worked and he still works. Work isn't something that is added to the biblical narrative. It comes right at the start. 
And then we see that God worked in the dirt of his creation to create Adam and Eve. We get our next uh, slide. Okay. So then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And then in Genesis 2, we see that God created um, created a woman. So the Lord God caused the uh, deep sleep, you can see that in the text, to fall upon man. And while he, he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place. See that passage there. And then we see again in Genesis chapter 2.15, that God gave them the responsibility to work. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? To do what? To work. Alright. To work and to keep it. And so both man and woman were given the responsibility to take care of the creation. Genesis chapter 1. And the Bible tells us that God calls people to every kind of legitimate work. And he gives us skills. Does he not? He gives us talents. Look at the skills and the talents that God has given around this building at the moment. Some have great skills to play musical instruments. Others have great skills in singing. Others have great accountancy skills, medical skills, teaching skills. You name it, it's all there. Skills. Others think they have talents like singing. You shouldn't laugh, friends, because you have a go, you know, that's the Aussie way, isn't it? To have a go if you can sing, and if you can't sing, still have a go. The point is, that skills and talents and gifts that God gives to people, and, and so use those things, friends. Therefore, we must work when possible. Of course, sometimes you can't work because of physical health, given. Sometimes you can't work because there is no employment. That's a given. And that's hard. But we are responsible as Christians for the quality, character and ethics of our work and of our faithfulness to God in our work who gives us the breath of life to work. And just in passing, friends, to say to you, in response to that person who asked me that question yesterday, what do you do during the day? Uh, I just want to say this, just in case you're wondering. And this is not justification here, by any means. Every month, ever since I began ministry 20 odd years ago, I always submit a report to my elders. My elders are here, you can ask them. And I've said to John as well, you must submit a report every month. We don't have to do it. In the Presbyterian system, we're not responsible to the session as ministers, we're responsible to the presbytery. But we have kept it as a practice, so that I am accountable, and I want them to hold me accountable for the time. Because otherwise I can become lazy. And I don't want to be that. We want to work well by God's grace. You see what I'm saying? There's a degree of accountability as well. See, we can often see the results of our work, can't we? If you're painting your house, you can see the finished work. I did paint my parents' house with Rose and the, and the, and the family. And some uh, professional worker came and he said, Who painted this house? I said, We did. I said, How do you know? I can see it. <laughs> Go away. Go away. You're not welcome into this place. <laughs> The carpenter sees the beauty of his product. The doctor finds satisfaction in work when the, with the recovering patient. When you see your patient recovering in health, the doctor sees the satisfaction in his work. If you're cooking, then you can taste the finished product, right? 
depending on how it all went in the process. I tried my hand three weeks ago to make a biscuit slice and I was the laughing stock in the home. It didn't work out, friends. The problem was not me, the problem was the recipe. <laughs> Correct? <laughs> That's passing the buck, isn't it? It's a good excuse. So if you're working in a workplace, we are not to try and impress the boss by working hard simply when he or she is around. Right? If you are in a paid position, then your responsibility and mine is to work well for your employer. Correct? As Christians, we must work well. Don't cut corners in the workplace. Be aware of that extra long coffee break, 15 minutes, but... Just another five minutes. Give an honest and a full day's work to your employer. Be aware of maintaining an excellent work ethic. Don't be lazy. You see, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about hard work. For example, oh, it's up there. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. Have you seen ants in action? They might come out very soon. So next time you see ants... You just observe them and don't take the ant rid and get rid of them. Please, just observe them. They're working hard, they're collecting their food. It can be a pain at times when you see all those ants on your kitchen bench. But look at the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. You see, the sluggard is a picture of laziness. It will be all right, mate. Just sit down, take it easy. It's a picture of laziness. In the providence of God, friends. It is hard work, not worthless pursuits or a rush to be rich that is the path to wealth. Proverbs 28. You can look at that. Why? Because doing, look at the text here, 7 to 8. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Work then has to be approached as to the Lord. So whom are you working for? At the end of the day, it should always be an approach as to the Lord. Whatever the work may be, it is done as to the Lord. This is the governing principle for work. There is dignity in work because God has made us in his image and every human being has worth and value. The people who do the simplest things, of uh, simplest kinds of work are as Martin Luther wrote, the fingers of God. Right? The people who do the simplest kinds of work are, as Martin Luther wrote, the fingers of God. Because of this, doing our work well or being the best at what we do is one way to be a Christian in the workplace. Because you're a witness for Christ. Think about that. Your work colleague sees you. Your work colleague sees your work ethics. They understand your language. And you're a witness for Jesus. Not to be man-pleasers, but rather to please the Lord. Knowing that ultimately we're not serving human beings, human lords, but the one Lord who is in heaven. Let me refer also to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, no wisdom. What's the text saying? Ecclesiastes is saying, do your work now, while you can. Because the time will come 
when this body won't move anymore, when these lips will not speak anymore, be dead. A sobering reminder, isn't it, for the meaning of life. And so I always ask myself the question, Lord, what can I do? How can I? I'll share with you something that I pray every day for. I've made this resolution this year. Every morning I will say, Lord, make this day, apart from other things that I pray for, and one of the points is, make this day a productive day for you. That I can look back at the end of the day and say, Lord, by your grace, it was productive. So far it's working alright, sometimes it's not. So there you go. See, when we work, when we look at work, whatever the work may be from the perspective of God's perspective, we will see it as our service to the Lord. What a radical way of looking at work. So that when the Monday morning comes, when, you, when the alarm goes on, and you know you've got to get up at 6 o'clock, you just put the button and say, I'm going to sleep in a bit more. If you have a dog, it doesn't work. Because he will bark, or she will bark at 6.30, as my dog does. And I say to him, I said, the other day I said, don't bark, Toby. Be there. I'm your master. I will take you out when I want to take you out. It doesn't work sometimes. You see what I'm saying? Right? Um, a radical way at looking at work. When I, whatever I call him, we must work from God's perspective. It does not mean work allism, as I said, that we need to fill every waking moment with hard work. The fact is that tomorrow is not guaranteed to any one of us. Therefore, we must take advantage of the time we have in the present to serve the Lord in whatever work we do in the world and in His church. Kingdom work. How many of you are involved in that kind of work as well? Now, all work is, is, is for the glory of God. But also giving time for gospel work in the church. To say, Lord, I want to be not a spectator in the church, but I want to be a participant. Right? Spectators come and they, hooray, well done. And they clap and they go. But participants are there saying, put in the, the shoulder to the wheel and say, okay, I want to serve you, God. I want to be part of that process. I want to be part of the kingdom work that you've called me to do in terms of gospel ministry. How am I to use my time in that work as well? Dr. Asis Crowell uh, puts it this way. Whenever, sorry, wherever Christians are rendering a service, they must understand that such service is ultimately presented not to employers or owners, but to Christ. So that by serving our masters or employers well, we are thereby rendering service to Christ. (laughs) Alright. John Stott makes the following observation. It is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were coming to eat it. Or to sprinkle in the house as if Jesus Christ were the honored guest. So when you're vacuuming and when you're sweeping and when you're cleaning the kitchen bench, don't, no. Let's not put things under the carpet, you know. Do the work well. I'm not saying housewives do it. Please, uh, I'll be in trouble here, but you know what I mean, right? It is possible for teachers to educate children. This is what Stott says. For doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them. For solicitors to help clients. Shop assistants to serve customers. Accountants to audit books. And secretaries to type letters as if each were serving Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, our memory text, 
So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, complete it. Do it all for the glory of God. Now, there's also a word for masters as we move on. Masters, do not uh, do, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours in heaven. Paul commands masters, verse 9, to exercise their authority in such a way to ensure Christ-like treatment of their slaves. He charges them not to make threats. Have you ever worked under a difficult boss? A boss that blurts out, shouts, walks around like a monster? Have you? A boss who is unreasonable? A boss who does not pay well, underpays? A boss who exploits workers by paying below the minimum wage? You see, James has a word for these bosses. <laughs> Look at that. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters. What has happened? Where has it reached? Where has the cries of the harvesters reached? It has reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Workers have to live, right? They have to pay their bills. They have to look after their families. They have to, to labor and, and be, be justly rewarded. And, and the Bible says, the Lord knows. He hears the cries of the workers. The employer is to treat his or her employee the same way that he hopes to be treated by his master in heaven. So if you are a workplace boss, be a reasonable boss to your workers. Don't exploit your workers. They are both under authority of the supreme master. If you are an employer, then look after your staff well. Pay the worker his or her due wages. Be generous. Whether a master or employer, notice that both are under the same authority. Paul calls upon masters to account. He reminds them that there is no partiality with the supreme master. As we see in the Colossian passage as well, uh, where Paul says that in, in Colossians, Masters, provide for your slaves. With what is right. Friends, there is justice and fairness for slaves was unheard at the time, and this was radical teaching. God cares for justice, He cares for fairness. There is no partiality with Him. At the judgment bar of God, there is no partiality, there is no bias with God, there are no special deals with God. So, in summary this morning, we have seen, the point is, we have seen two points here. The principles we have seen in this passage can be applied to employ an employee. If you are an employee, then you are to work with a sincerity of heart and obey those above you just as you would obey Christ. If you are an employer, then know that you are accountable to God who will show no partiality. The first thing that Christianity brought that undermined the very system of slavery is the doctrine of what I call common lordship. Common lordship is that Christ is over the Christian master and the Christian slave. He is over all as well. Christianity, my dear friends, came about to bring a massive influence in the slave trade and ultimately the abolition of it in the UK and in the US and other parts of the world. But sadly, there are millions 
today who are as slaves. We live in a fallen world of sin and there will always be the problem of slavery. We live in a fallen world of sin and there will always be workplace issues. And sometimes one has to pray for guidance if you would like to stay in a workplace or move on from that place of employment. The fact is that we are to obey those in authority over us as we would in Christ. So, in conclusion, whom are you working for? Whom are you working for? As Christians, we are ultimately working for the Lord. It is essential to keep this in mind, whether slave or master, the greatest example we have is Jesus. He is both servant and Lord. And the Bible tells us that he came to set us free. Acts chapter 13. Philippians chapter 2. He gave up his very nature as it were. And took upon himself human nature on the cross. And became obedient unto death on the cross. Why? To set us free ultimately from the shackles of sin. Do you know this Jesus this morning? Jesus said, I have come to set you free. The captives, to set the captives free, Isaiah says. To take the shackles ultimately of sin itself. And so this morning, the ultimate example is Christ. The servant king and the saving Lord. Do you know him? May our lives and our work always be shaped by Christ because in him there is blessing ultimately. May God help us to be great workers for the kingdom. Give glory and honor and praise to him. Amen. Let's pray.